Welcome to October in the Capital Region. There's a slight chill in the air, and we're starting to see some epic Halloween displays in yards across the region. Coming up on this episode of The Eagle, we'll go over the top headlines. There were inaccuracies, or at least elisions of the truth, including, including one lie. We'll get the latest on the impact of the state's vaccine mandate on healthcare workers and hospitals. They were worried that, okay, if we have to place, you know, 100, 200, 300 employees on temporary leave or potentially permanently lose them, that's going to be a strain on a system that's already at a point where it has like, it's almost at a breaking point. And we'll check in with Times Union columnist Chris Churchill on some of the topics he's been tackling lately. It's probably going to be an election where Republicans do well. And if that's the case, then the race in the 19th will be awfully close and the race in the 21st won't won't be close. This is The Eagle, a Times Union podcast, a look inside our newsroom. I'm Jessica Marshall. If you're enjoying this podcast, take advantage of all the Times Union has to offer and support our efforts to bring in you award-winning journalism by becoming a Times Union member today. Go to timesunion.com slash subscribe. Welcome to The Eagle. I'm Jessica Marshall. First up, let's go over what appeared this week in the Times Union and on timesunion.com. We are here once again with Times Union editor Casey Seiler. We're going to go over top headlines. Let's start with a quick roundup of some state house news. Uh, now we're going to hit on the state vaccine mandate for healthcare workers later in the podcast, so we'll skip that for now. But right now, let's touch on the fact that there's a new leader in the Department of Health and there's a minimum wage hike. Yes, um, the new DOH uh, leader, as picked by Governor Kathy Hochul, is Mary Bassett, who was the New York City Health and Mental Hygiene Commissioner under Mayor Bill de Blasio uh, between 2014 and 2018. And of course, during those years, the city faced a number of health crises, none as big as the uh, as the coronavirus pandemic, happily. But that included an an Ebola scare in Brooklyn and outbreak of Legionnaire's disease as well. Of course, Bassett is going to come in behind Howard Zucker, who has been embroiled in a couple of the same scandals that ended up swamping former Governor Andrew Cuomo. She faces uh, having to kind of restock the top leadership echelon in the Department of Health. It's also down a a couple of hundred employees from a a staff of more than 3,000. And yes, you mentioned the minimum wage hike. Starting January 1st, upstate workers, the wage will go up 70 cents to 13.20, which is is good, not quite as good as uh, workers in Westchester County and Long Island. Their wage will go from $14 to $15 in the same time span. All right. More on all things New York state politics and government on our Capital Confidential section of TimesUnion.com. All right. Moving on. Former Albany Roman Catholic Diocese leader Bishop Howard Hubbard, who has been accused of mishandling sexual abuse claims um, against the diocese. He's in the news again this week. So tell us what's going on with him. 
uh, Howard Hubbard was deposed over multiple days a couple of months ago by a group of attorneys for plaintiffs who had brought um, Child Victims Act cases against the diocese. You know, Hubbard led the diocese for uh, decades, including during the period where uh, many of these uh, allegations of abuse by clergy uh, stem from. Now, we don't know what he said in uh, that deposition because, of course, it was sealed by the judge. But attorneys for the plaintiffs have said that uh, at least elements of that deposition ought to be unsealed as a result of the fact that the former uh, bishop gave a statement to uh, Ed McKinley, uh, who is a Capitol Bureau reporter of ours who has just moved down to Texas, for a story on how the diocese handled these claims in which Hubbard said, we weren't aware of the damage that could be done from the abuse of children. And it was our policy. We had been advised back in the 70s and 80s that when a credible allegation against a priest came forward, that that priest was sent off for therapy and not returned to clerical duties until it had been determined that the possibility of, of reoffending was was minimal. Of course, that uh, essentially is acknowledging that the diocese was aware of credible claims of, of abuse against priests, and rather than report them to the police, at least in every occasion, not in every occasion, you know, sent them in many cases out of state for treatment. Now, the plaintiff's attorneys claim that in that statement to Ed McKinley and in a, an op-ed that ran after Ed's story ran, in which the bishop restated many of many of these things, there were inaccuracies or at least elisions of the truth, including including one lie or what the the plaintiff's attorneys characterize as a lie. So um, that, of course, is going to be the subject of filings and counterfilings in you know a series of lawsuits that present a considerable you know financial uh, peril to the diocese, as similar cases have to you know, diocese around the state. Now, we have had Ed McKidley on this podcast before talking about it. So if you're interested, go back and check out some of the previous episodes where we had him on. So moving up north a bit to Saratoga County, something smelled funny up there this week. And I mean that literally. So can you tell us what happened up there? Yeah, residents in Moreau were surprised to find a smell that one person described as like burning wires on Monday night. It turns out it was tear gas that was um, flowing downhill from Mount McGregor, you know, the former state prison facility where Docs was, um, that is the uh, State Department of uh, Corrections and Community Supervision. They were conducting training drills. They were using tear gas. They said that they had informed the state police about this, but the town supervisor in Moreau said that he was never informed. And obviously people were quite freaked out and wondering if this was some kind of industrial accident. So clearly Docs needs to do a little bit more in spreading the word to uh, neighborhoods adjacent to wherever it's conducting live tear gas trainings. Well, this certainly wasn't the first, and it certainly won't be the last story about strange smells around the capital region. Um, moving, oh no, we're going to stay in Saratoga County here. Uh, a very famous resident of Saratoga Springs died this week. So whom did we lose? 
My pappy said, son, you're gonna drive me to drinking if you don't stop driving that hot rod Lincoln. We lost George Frayne, who was 77 and better known as Commander Cody, the leader of Commander Cody and the Lost Planet Airmen, a pretty, uh, I think it's fair to say, unclassifiable sort of rock, rockabilly, boogie-woogie, just a classic, well-traveled roots band had um, their biggest hit many, many moons ago with uh, a cover of, you know, the great old rockabilly hit Hot Rod Lincoln. George Frayne had lived in Saratoga for more than two decades and he had recently undergone treatment uh, for cancer. So another beloved figure in the the regional music scene who had uh, really a national profile lost. Finally, that big sports arena in downtown Albany is now going to be the arena formerly known as the Times Union Center. Tell us what happened there this week. Correct. On Wednesday, our publisher, George Hurst, uh, you know, through our outstanding operations uh, leader, informed the county that um, the Times Union would not be re-upping on naming rights for the facility currently known as the Times Union Center, previously known as the Pepsi Arena, previously known as the Knickerbocker Arena, as the publisher laid out in his statement. While we have had a very good 15-year run, um, having our, our name on that that fine entertainment venue in downtown Albany, um, we are, you know, investing in our core journalistic product, and we're also, um, you know, expanding our reach into into the Hudson Valley. That is, I, I think, a, a wise decision. Of course, it leaves open the question of who or what the facility will be named after the Times Union name comes down. All right. Well, I know you can tell a capital regioner's like age or, you know, date them somewhat by how they refer to that arena. For me, it'll always be known as the Knickerbocker Arena in my heart. So all that <laughs> money down the drain, Jess, that's that's terrible. But yes, Jimmy Vilkind, my former capital colleague, said in a tweet that the Times Union was giving up its 15 year fight to make him call the Knickerbocker Arena someplace else. And of course, my response was it was either that or change the name of the paper back to the Knickerbocker News, and then we would have had Jimmy over the barrel. But we've got far too much uh, Times Union logo swag around here. <laughs> too late for that. All right. Thank you so much, Casey. We'll talk to you next week. Thanks, Jess. As always, you can read more about all the stories and issues that we discuss on this podcast at timesunion.com. Capital Region hospitals have suspended hundreds of healthcare workers this week without pay. The reason? They haven't gotten their COVID-19 jabs. New York State's vaccine mandate went into effect Monday. Employees who continue to refuse the vaccination will face termination. The move leaves already short-staffed hospitals in a precarious situation. Albany Medical Center President Dr. Dennis McKenna spoke at a press conference after the mandate took effect. Albany Med will do everything it can to maintain our critical services throughout this staffing crisis. And as I've said many times, it truly is a crisis. There's no two ways about that. Health reporter Bethany Bump has been tirelessly covering this story. So I went to her to get the latest on how this affects the region. 
So let's start by going over what exactly is this vaccine mandate? What does it require of healthcare workers at this point? Yeah, so the vaccine mandate, um, which was announced actually by former Governor Cuomo, um, but carried through with by Governor Hochul, basically says that all healthcare workers in the state or most healthcare workers in the state currently have to have received at least one dose of vaccine by September 27th, which was this past Monday, um, in order to stay in their job. So we knew that that was going to create some controversy, of course, but that was basically a situation going into this Monday. And there were some legal challenges to this prior to Monday, right? Yeah, they fully expect that the legal challenges, there's been several from several different groups for several different reasons. There's been a, a challenge to try to maintain a religious exemption that's still um, being looked at in court um, to see if New York will be able to get rid of religious exemptions or if they have to allow them. You know, obviously there's some other challenges as well, but those are primarily what we're seeing. Take me through your week of reporting this. Okay, so we knew that Tuesday stuff was going to start um, happening. So, you know, at, actually the hospitals were trying to prepare the public for this last week because they had been experiencing um, staffing shortages for a while. So when they knew that this mandate was coming up, they were worried that, okay, if we have to place, you know, 100, 200, 300 employees on temporary leave, or potentially permanently lose them, that's going to be a strain on a system that's already at a point where it has like, it's almost at a breaking point. So they were really worried about any additional strain and started to speak out about it. So we knew going into um, Tuesday morning that there was hope that they would see their numbers of unvaccinated workers shrink in the hours and days leading up to that deadline. And that was indeed the case for some of these hospitals, but others did not. So it was kind of a mixed bag. We woke up on Tuesday morning and Albany Medical Center um, announced that they were going to hold a press conference to discuss basically what happened when the mandate went into effect. So um, they told us that of their approximately 11,000 employees, 204 had not met the deadline and had been placed on unpaid leave. That was down actually from about 253, I want to say, a week earlier. So they they did see the mandate, you know, help shrink that pool of unvaccinated workers by about 50. Did they give any indication as like what type of healthcare workers they were? Were they nurses? Were they doctors? Were they staffers? Yeah, well, the largest category was nurses. So of that 204, um, I believe it was 48 of them were nurses. The next largest pool, and it, this was, I want to say it was more than a, two dozen patient care associates. So those are the workers who assist the nurses. And there were 10 physicians, which was somewhat surprising. And then there were six students. And then they had very small numbers across a bunch of different departments. So you heard from Albany Med. Um, what about the other hospitals in the region and, uh, you know, healthcare facilities? Well, St. Peter's Health Partners, they operate four hospitals in the capital region. They have a similar employee pool, so they have about 11,000 workers. They had 322 that did not meet that deadline. So they were in the capital region, they had the most employees fail to meet the deadline. Now, actually, one day earlier, that number was about 400. So they saw, you know, they had about 80 employees go out and get last minute shots, which 
again, I think shows that the mandate can work in terms of boosting vaccination rates. We did see um, vaccination rates rise across the state at hospitals and nursing homes and adult care facilities in the weeks leading up to this mandate. Um, and there was sort of a, a, a last minute rush as well to get some shots, but there were definitely holdouts. Now, tell me about the holdouts here. The hospitals have different different policies and practices for this, but essentially they have all placed these people on unpaid leave. The length of leave might vary depending on the hospital. So Albany Med is giving employees seven days to get vaccinated or else they're going to be terminated. I'm forgetting the hospital, but it's one of the smaller ones in the region is giving their employees 90 day leave. So that's kind of a bigger difference. Their hope is that once these employees are placed on unpaid leave, they will have time to see, you know, okay, maybe I really don't want to lose my job and I should go get the shot. Um, A lot of these hospital administrators are really hoping that's the case, but um, we really are not going to see the full firings until next week at the earliest. Have you been talking to anybody who's, who's still a holdout? I have actually, I, I, there's a, a a nurse from um, St. Peter's that I've, I try to keep in touch with, and she is among um, those people who who believes that you know she should have the right to decide what she puts in her body, and that's um, the main belief that I think is is driving a lot of these people. Sure. Now, do you have any sort of more thoughts as you kind of pursue this into next week and the immediate future? What are what are your thoughts um, having covered this? What I really um, am am curious to see is just how uh, the scope or scale of how this ends up impacting just general health care in the region, because we're still in a COVID surge. So the hospitals are are definitely still dealing with COVID patients. It looks like the numbers might be starting to plateau, but it's kind of too soon to say if that will last. So the fact, though, that we have these very long wait times in the ERs and we have ambulances sitting in in parking lots waiting for beds to open up at the hospitals for one, two, three, sometimes four hours. I, I was just talking with Sheriff Craig Apple from Albany County today about this issue. He had made a Facebook post yesterday about it, um, about how concerned he was, basically, that they're having to wait hours just to get their ambulances back. And that's a concern, obviously, because if you call 911 and, you know, the closest ambulance is, is, you know, still waiting at a hospital to offload their patient, you know, that could become problematic. And so that's, that's definitely the big concern right now. Now, to be fair, and I, and I want to say that all of the hospital leadership said this repeatedly and emphasize this, the mandate did not cause this crisis. This was a crisis before the mandate Nobody wanted to talk about it. <laughs> you know, people were were talking about it, but it didn't get this kind of attention until the mandate. The mandate it was sort of like the last straw. You know what I mean? It, it was the thing that could lead to a breaking point. And so, again, the powder keg, right? Yeah. Well, we're in a holding pattern right now because these employees are on temporary leave and the hospitals are, are hoping that they can get a good portion of them back. The next couple of weeks, I think we're going to see more what the impact of this really will be. All right. Well, I look forward to your reporting. Thank you so much. Thank you. After the break, state politics, congressional races and vaccines. What do they all have in common? Well, they have a lot. 
But one of those commonalities for our purposes is that columnist Chris Churchill has taken on all three lately. We'll check in with him. Hi, I'm Casey Seiler, editor of The Times Union. Join us for an ongoing discussion on major developments in the saga of Keith Raniere, co-founder of Nexium, the shadowy upstate New York organization at the center of the explosive federal investigation that resulted in Raniere's conviction on charges of extortion, sex trafficking, and more. We talk to former members of Nexium, discuss the latest news, and preview the likely next twists in this bizarre and disturbing story. You can find Nexium on trial at timesunion.com or wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome back. You're listening to The Eagle, a Times Union podcast. I'm Jessica Marshall. Columnist Chris Churchill has not shied away from contentious topics lately, or ever, really. But in the last few weeks, he's tackled a few big ones. I caught up with him to discuss his latest. All right, Chris, you've been writing some really awesome columns lately that have gotten a lot of traffic. So we're going to talk about a couple of them. Let's start with the latest one where you take a stance on the governor's mandate that healthcare workers be vaccinated or be fired or let go. So let me start with the question, why tackle this topic? Well, I wrote it on on Monday when when the mandate was coming down and it was kind of the big topic of the day. And it was something that a lot of people were thinking about and that seemed to be potentially affecting a lot of people's lives. I mean, not just the people who are going to be fired, but everybody who needs to go to a hospital or is going to have a baby or has a, you know, a doctor's appointment. It was remarkable to me too, that, you know, a year ago, healthcare workers were just considered, you know, heroes of the pandemic and rightly so. I mean, the the hours they put in, the sacrifices they made, the risks they made to their own health. And then just, you know, a year later to have some segment of them, a relatively small segment, but still some segment of them fired. It's just, um, it's kind of a remarkable situation. You mentioned in the column, obviously, that you are, you know, pro-vaccine and that you feel like all healthcare workers should be vaccinated. But how do you kind of take a stance on that when your personal views are? I think people should get vaccinated. I think I was vaccinated pretty early. I think it's the right thing to do. I think people in in most cases, people who are refusing to get vaccinated are making the wrong decision. And when this mandate came down, I to be honest, I didn't think that much of it. It seemed pretty commonsensical and pretty logical. But sometimes things, even policies with good intentions, don't play out as people expected them to. And I think with the situation that appears to be developing where there's just not going to be enough healthcare workers, I think the consequences of that could end up being worse than, than the problem you're trying to solve. Our whole goal throughout the entire pandemic has been to protect the healthcare system and make it make sure that people who you know, or going in for a heart attack or some other malady aren't, aren't affected by COVID-19. You know, we didn't want the healthcare system to be overrun. We wanted to, you know, make sure that people had access to it. And now because of this policy, it's, it, you know, 
hospitals across the state are cutting services. It's kind of it's kind of an irony there, I think. Put your futurist hat on. I mean, what do you foresee happening? I, well, I mean, it's, it's an open question right now. But, you know, as you know, we're calling in the governor is planning on calling in workers from out of state or bringing people back from retirement or calling in National Guard workers. Maybe it'll all work out fine. Maybe this will all just seem like panic over nothing. Certainly. Those are all really important questions that I have no doubt you will be following up on yeah, in the coming weeks. It's one of those things, I mean, hindsight's twenty twenty, right? It's like I said, I wasn't, the policy didn't jump out to me as a bad idea at the time. Although it did jump out, you know, I'm not in government, right? But it, it did jump out to a lot of healthcare executives and policy people that they, it could be a bad idea. There's a reason that other states haven't done this. And the reason is the consequences may be more negative than whatever benefit is gained. There are nurses and healthcare workers who have good reasons not to be vaccinated. They're not all just, you know, listening to um, propaganda and, and, and brainwash. Some of them have very good reasons. It seems harsh that they would be terminated uh, without unemployment benefits after working so hard and, and doing so much for us over the last year and a half plus. A complicated issue, no matter how you look at it. Yeah. Let's move on to some of the columns that you did on some of the major congressional races that we have to look forward to next year, specifically that of the 19th and 21st. So let's start with the 19th, because that's a little bit more recent. Mark Molinaro, who's the Dutchess County Executive, has declared a run against Antonio Delgado, who is the incumbent Democrat. So what what are your thoughts on that? It's an interesting race. Mark Molinaro is a, a tough candidate. In 2020, I think Republicans thought that seat, that they could win that seat back from Antonio Delgado. And there was a lot of pressure to try to get Mark Molinaro to run. And he resisted. And I think he resisted because he knew it would be really awkward for him to have Trump on the ballot at the same time. He'd be having to defend the, the former president all the time. He'd be asked about his positions on the, the former president. Mark Molinaro is someone who's always one of the Republicans who's kept a real distance from, from Trump. Uh, so he didn't run in 2020, even though a lot of people were really urging him to. And I think he sees... Uh, next year is really a, a chance to win, and I think he he will have a really good chance. That'll be an interesting one to watch for sure. Um, now let's go up to the twenty first in the North Country with incumbent Elise Stefanik, a Republican who has very much hitched her wagon uh, to Trump. What are your thoughts on that race, and and you know the folks that have declared candidacy against her? They're interesting people. There are some very very compelling resumes and. Anyone who runs, I, I think all all the power to them. But I, I just don't. She's going to be awfully tough to beat, you know. And I don't think most of the people who have run against her, I should have written down their names <laughs> because I don't. I'm afraid I'm going to mess them up. So I'm like, you're right there about how you know the influence that she has in that region. Surely that we can't even remember the names of the people that declared <laughs> yeah. candidate her. But you wrote a, a column specifically talking about her underestimation of. The Latino vote. Can you can you talk more about that? She's a strange politician in that she there's like two sides to her. There's the Twitter side. There's the fundraising side, which is very over the top, very kind of extreme. And then there's the you know the person who actually does the day to day job of being a congressperson every day. And I've never really been able to square those two those two sides of her. But she did a fundraising email where she basically floated the um, the idea that Democrats want 
uh, citizenship for Latino voters as kind of to replace white voters and to ensure a permanent Democratic majority, which is this kind of ugly idea that kind of bubbles up on the on the alt-right sometimes about the elites wanting to replace white voters with minority voters so that Democrats always win. There's obviously a racism to it and an ugliness to it, but it's also factually wrong. It, there, there's really little evidence that Latino voters, I mean, if you look in states like Texas or Florida, the Latino vote is pretty divided. There's really very little evidence that um, they're all going to vote for Democratic candidates. Hispanic voters, Latino voters tend to be pretty socially conservative. There's really no reason that Republican candidates can't compete for that vote. It's it's funny because in her district, there are so few Latino voters that it's kind of like, we're, this is kind of a more of a national notion, but um, the way things are shaping up right now, it, it looks like Republicans will do pretty well. They The opposition party almost always did, does pretty well in the midterm elections. And I think that's why, you know, going back to the 19th, I think that's why Molinaro saw this as a, a good time to run. It's probably going to be an election where Republicans do well. And if that's the case, then the race in the 19th will be awfully close and the race in the 21st won't won't be close. What are you going to tackle next? Yeah, I'm interested in the population growth that's occurring in, along the rivers in some of the river cities. Like if you look at the census numbers, Manans, Cohoes, Green Island all had some of the biggest population jumps in the region. And I'm thinking about writing about that for an upcoming column. Fascinating. Yeah. What's interesting is they're all, with the exception of Manans, they're taking advantage of the river, right? Which is something that cities like Albany and Waterville can't really do because of, you know, that very obvious highway that runs along. So it, it's kind of interesting that, you know, these cities without 787 are benefiting from its absence while Albany, Albany's riverfront kind of continues to stagnate. All right. Well, we'll look forward to, to hearing about that. And we might catch up with you on the podcast about it. All right. Sounds good. All right, that's it for this week. I'm Jessica Marshall. We'll be back next week with another look inside the newsroom here at the Times Union. In the meantime, check us out on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and Instagram, or head over to timesunion.com for the latest news and features. The Eagle is a production of the Times Union. It's produced and edited by me, Jessica Marshall, with help from the Times Union digital team and the newsroom. Special thanks this week to Casey Seiler, Bethany Bump, and Chris Churchill for their reporting and contribution to this episode.